Welcome to the Laurie Lawrence podcast, Stuff the Silver, We're Going for Gold. This podcast came about by me wanting to value add to my online swim teacher and coaching platform, WorldwideSwimSchool.com. It was simply an idea that I'd read and share chapters of the two books that I'd written about my eight Olympic Games adventures. And when I run out of chapters, I'd interview some of the great sportsmen and sportswomen that I'd encountered over the 50 years of my international coaching career. Tell your friends, if it helps one person expand their lives a little or achieve their dreams, it will have served the purpose. If it doesn't do this, try at least to remember, the harder you work, the harder it is to surrender. This podcast is about a young kid who at 17 years of age won the Olympic gold medal in the 200 metres butterfly. It's about John Sieben and it's called Steep Roads Lead to High Mountains. However, in this story, there are two different morals. There's the moral of how to win, you have to dedicate, you have to discipline, you have to be perfect in everything you do at training. That's number one. Number two is, if you don't discipline, if you don't train hard, then you give other people an opportunity to beat you. It doesn't matter how good you are. Let's get on with the story. Steep roads lead to high mountains. John Sieben. Sport is a great leveller. It gives common man the opportunity to rub shoulders with royalty. A tradition that started as early as the London Olympic Marathon in 1908 when the royal family requested the race start in the Palace Gardens. Sport is also a great teacher. It teaches the value of dedication and commitment. Generally, in sport, if you are prepared to dedicate yourself to a goal, you will improve. In sport, there are two directions, forwards and backwards. And the direction taken is chosen by the individual. The desire to be successful often burns in the belly of both the coach and the athlete. But most times, the coach is merely the catalyst who provides the expertise and the guidance in helping the athlete set whatever realistic goals are required for success. But ultimately, it is the athlete who decides which path will be taken. The athlete decides whether to climb a mountain or slide down the mountain. The coach's jobs is to point out the reality of this endeavour. The coach must point out just how hard the journey will be. Steep roads lead to high mountains. Success becomes a choice. But remember, the higher the mountain, the better the view. So you young kids out there, start climbing. I coach many young kids with gold dust in their eyes. Tough young kids with Olympic dreams. They are dreams that are shared by hundreds of other young Australian kids. They are dreams put there by the feats of modern-day champions such as Hayley Lewis, John Sieben, Duncan Armstrong, Kieran Perkins, Grant Hackett, Kate Campbell and many of the other Australian champions, too many to mention. Of all the young swimmers I've coached over the years, 
no one ever attacked his Olympic dream with more intelligence or purpose than John Seaman. His remarkable example of application, single-mindedness and toughness taught me how things must be done if people want to be successful, whether it be on the athletic field or in life. Every time I watch a replay of the 200 metres butterfly final at the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics, Google it, I marvel at the barnstorming finish that brought Sieben from fifth at the final turn, more than a body length behind two world record holders, to a smashing victory. Still, I can hear Mark Tonelli's call of the race. John Sieben is really challenging in lanes X for a bronze or even a silver medal. So it's Gross leading by half a body length over Morales. Look at Sieben come. Third place is Vidal at this stage. And Gross is dying. They're catching him up. Sieben could be a gold medal chance here. Ten metres to go. Sieben has hit the lead. This is gold for Australia. Gold. Three metres to go. Sieben's going to take it out. Gold for Australia. Yes, he's under the world record. This is a world record. John Sieben, 17 years of age. That is incredible. This is unbelievable. Unbelievable, no doubt. And I ask myself the question, why did John Sieben win? How could a 17-year-old boy who hadn't yet got the strength of a man beat Michael Gross, a superstar, a world record holder. How could an inexperienced kid pass Pablo Morales, another world record holder? How do these things happen and why? Why? The success crystallised in Jono's win certainly didn't happen by luck. Success requires planning, commitment, dedication, persistence and tough-mindedness over a long period of time. I have always insisted on the need for teamwork, belief and commitment. Sport is about believing in yourself and it's about faith. Sport is about making a commitment. If you want to be successful, the answer lies in total commitment. I have always demanded this of anyone I have ever trained who are either going to or endeavouring to go to an Olympic event. The catch cry has always been, when your time comes to race, be ready. I'll say it again. When your time comes to race, be ready. On the wall of the cluttered old gymnasium where we train, the message greets my swimmers daily. By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. My hope is that the truth of this message will be etched into each swimmer's subconscious and become part of his or her battle armour. As a result, whenever the swimmers compete in an international event, they should be fully prepared, totally committed and once on the blocks, able to find an extra 10% needed to win a gold medal. A sure wrecker of performance is procrastination. The question, can I do this later, is a certain way of not doing it at all. You can never 
make up missed training opportunities. And swimmers must act to protect racing confidence by completing the training tasks set by the coach. I believe Jono won in Los Angeles not only because he was the best prepared butterflyer in the field, but more importantly, he had a mental toughness rare in one so young. Mental toughness can't be taught or bought and when he stood up on the blocks with two world record holders in the field, he was completely unfazed. You'd have thought he had ice in his veins. He was totally confident in his ability. That confidence was built by a solid preparation which for more than 12 months he hadn't missed a single training session. In fact, since he was a 10-year-old boy, he never, never broke stroke in butterfly in his life. That is a great claim to fame. His daily routine, of course, was humdrum, but consistent. Up at five daily, training in the pool from 5.30 through to 8 o'clock, and later if needed, during the day, seeking an edge over his opponents, he performed the extra little things. He would go for a run, or slip down to the local gym for some strength training. Mid-afternoon, he'd be back at Chandler for another three-hour swim training session. For 12 months, 11 sessions a week at the pool, and more on the road or in the gym, he kept up this daily grind. This was a training ritual he steadfastly refused to break. During the Queensland Championships in January of the Olympic year, 1984, he fell and injured his arm. He was unable to race. It would have been an absolute disaster for many, but not Jono. Still, he refused to miss training. Instead, the temporary setback was seen as an opportunity to strengthen his legs. He breezed into the pool and kicked lap after lap on a kickboard with his arm wrapped in fibreglass. He ignored the taunts of fellow swimmers who teased him for missing the championships. His mind was focused on bigger fish. With the picture clear, he kicked up and down the Chandler pool for hours. By working on a kick, which would propel him to victory in Los Angeles, he was exhibiting a mental toughness beyond his years. John O'Seban always loved Butterfly, and even as a little boy, he'd made it a matter of pride that he was going to be so tough that he would never break stroke in his chosen discipline ever. Pride and personal dignity seemed to be a great ingredient for success in the world of champions that I coached. Jono exhibited both qualities, and no matter how hard I trained him, he was determined, as a matter of honour, that I would never crack him. I would never defeat him. He would never be put in a position where he would surrender to the training regime. He would cop it sweet. He would do everything that was asked of him. This eerie single-mindedness was present when he was an eight-year-old splashing around the Innisfail pool. By race day in Los Angeles almost ten years later, Jono had never 
broken stroke in butterfly. Add this to a natural competitive instinct and you had one tough, super confident, expectant athlete who, when he climbed up on the blocks and eyeballed his competitors, was not going to be phased or frightened in any way by reputations. He would stand on the blocks. He would know that he had done the work. He would look to the left and look to the right and say, come on, let's race. But this story is more than how a skinny little kid became Australia's only swimming gold medalist in Los Angeles. It's a story about a tough, well-prepared, talented young Aussie kid who had something extra that enabled him to go all the way. That extra factor was a quality of mental toughness equaled by any athlete that I'd ever coached. John Seban was a racer. He was intelligent. He studied every one of his opponents by subscribing to and reading everything he could about them in the Swimming World magazine. One day, at the 1973 Queensland Swimming Championships at the Old Valley Pool in Brisbane, the announcer's voice boomed across the pool, warning, Hey, hey, someone, watch the country kid in lane four. He's swallowed water. He's in trouble. Someone will have to help get him out. That was John Seban, a string bean from Innisfail with a crew cut. He was treading water and spluttering in the middle lane as his rivals streamed past. The leader was now some 15 metres ahead. Most nine-year-old boys in such a situation would hold onto the rope, shed a tear or two and gracefully accept a friendly hand out of the pool. Most boys would take solace from the concern expressed by well-meaning and worried officials. Most boys would appreciate the officials draping a dry towel around their shoulders and escorting them back to their anxious parents. But not John Seban. He suddenly exploded back into action and gave chase after the leaders. One by one he mowed them down and won the race. That day, as a raw nine-year-old, he showed the promise of things to come. His courage was instinctive. In 1984, at 17 years of age, John Seban reached the pinnacle of athletic success with a victory in the 200 metres butterfly in Los Angeles. There was no doubt in my mind that four years later, in Seoul, John Seban was still the greatest 200 metres butterfly swimmer in the world. I'll say that again. John Seban won the 200 metres gold butterfly in Los Angeles. Now for me, there is no doubt in my mind that four years later, in Seoul, John Seban was still the greatest 200 metres butterfly swimmer in the world. Why then didn't he repeat his fantastic achievement of 1984? Why? Why couldn't he do it again at the 1988 Olympics in Seoul? The eventual winner of the gold medal was the German albatross Michael Gross who had never beaten John Seban in the final of any 200 metre butterfly race ever. As the Seoul Games approached, Jono had an opportunity to create Olympic history by being the first man to win the 200 metre butterfly gold medal back to back. 
but the message on the sign of the gymnasium wall by failing to prepare you are preparing to fail was rammed home to Jono and myself on a fateful night at the 1988 Olympic trials in Sydney. As a coach I've blamed myself for underestimating the opposition and not being totally prepared for the Seoul Olympic trials. In 1984, Jono was hungry, aggressive, a 17-year-old kid. He would not compromise workouts and refused to miss training. This attitude, this hunger, was the prime reason Jono was able to climb his Everest at such a young age. But when he came back to Australia as the Olympic champion and world record holder, his life changed dramatically virtually overnight. The kid from Kuparu, who loved nothing better than a bit of fun with the boys at Corumban Beach Vikings Lifesaving Club on the weekends, was now champion of the world and number one pin-up boy around the nation. He was our only gold medalist at the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles. This shy young bloke, who liked a day out at the races, who liked to play the odd game of golf or basketball, became an instant celebrity. On his return, he was driven down the main street of Brisbane in an open vintage car and presented to the people of Queensland via a ticker tape parade. In September, he was fated at the Sydney Rugby League Grand Final and then the VFL Grand Final. Politicians fell over themselves to shake his hand. Everybody wanted him to open functions, charities chased him, organisations around the country hounded him to be their guest speaker. The phone at the Seban household ran hot from swimming clubs all over the country. Please come and say a few words of encouragement to our budding champions, they asked. In just one minute, 57.04, Jono was thrust from total obscurity into the glare of the spotlight. This change of lifestyle was to affect his swimming performances dramatically, and my coaching performance in dealing with this new lifestyle was poor. It's easy to be wise in hindsight. But, as an accredited international coach, I should have known better and I should have done better. I just wasn't aggressive enough or demanding enough of his time. My expectations of his training weren't high enough. I didn't insist that he continue to do the things that made him Olympic champion. Jono started to miss training. Often, because of all these commitments, he would arrive late when he did come. As coach, I should have nipped it in the bud right then and there. I should have tried to be more aggressive to make him realise that, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. Today, whenever I see or hear the replay of Jono's 200m butterfly win in LA, it fills me with mixed emotions. A powerful mixture of pride, joy, anger, frustration and despair. At 17, my young charge was Olympic champion and world record holder. The world was his oyster. It should have been a mere formality for him to carve a special niche in Olympic history. Four years later, he would be physically stronger, 
His mental toughness was not in doubt. He had already displayed this. And by the time Sol came around, he would be in the prime of his life, 21 years of age. There would be no stopping him. Jono spent 1985 in the USA, racing the challenging college circuit. There, in a successful campaign, he demonstrated to the American fans both his toughness and his quality as a swimmer. I sent him there to be coached by the great Don Gambrell, Olympic head coach over many years of the US team, and now coaching at the University of Alabama. He returned home in 1986 and his class shone through as he won both the 100 and 200 metres butterfly in the Commonwealth Games trials. But it was about then that things started to go wrong. This was the beginning of two frustrating years as he prepared for the Seoul Olympic Games. A severe bout of glandular fever laid him low for 12 months and he was forced to withdraw from the Australian team. Back in the pool in 1987, he swam the Pan Pacifics in Brisbane under great difficulties, battling badly injured shoulders. Pablo Morales beat him in the 100 metres, but Jono was still able to beat Matt Biondi home in that event. Surely, the training run-up to the 1988 Olympics would be kinder to him. Sadly not. The frustrations continued. Do you know, sport is a great leveller, and there is abundant truth in the old axiom, a rooster today, a feather duster tomorrow. Where there should have been pride and glory, there is now only frustration when I think back to the lead-up to the Seoul Games. John Seban forgot how he became champion of the world. He forgot the early mornings. He didn't want to arrive at the pool at 5.30am anymore. He wanted to get there at 6 o'clock, but he still wanted to finish at 8 o'clock, effectively cutting 20% off his morning training workout. He forgot the little extras he used to do to add to his training. The daily run was replaced by a leisurely round of golf or a pro-am tournament. He forgot that the eight kilometres of butterfly had been a regular daily ritual, the bread and butter of his swimming diet. He forgot that before LA, he hadn't missed a training session for 12 months, churning through 10 or 11 sessions per week, plus the extras. I had two special divers' weight belts prepared, one for Duncan Armstrong and one for John O'Seban. Each had five kilo weights attached. Every night, as extra training, Duncan jumped into the 26-foot deep diving pool at Chandler, raised his hands above his head and kicked for half an hour. As a coach, I thought it was a great exercise. If you don't kick, you drown. After training, in my quest to get Jono to do more, to go the extra mile, to search for that edge, I'd say to him, Jump in, mate. Kick with Duncan. I'm trying to get his six-beat kick better. Oh, you don't need that shit, Laurie, he'd say. I've never done it before. I'll be all right. Don't you worry. Some days, he would not arrive at training until the afternoon, dog-tied from late nights and hard living. 
The conversations would go like this. I missed you yesterday, Jono. Yeah. Where were you? I had to go down to the coast. Jono, that's no good for your training. Yeah, it is. I did some board training. That's good for me. And I did some surf. The surf was filth. Jono, it's not the same thing as training in the pool. Yeah, it's good for me. It gets me fit. Yes, Jono, but that's an extra, not an instead of. You can do that, but do it as an extra, not instead of your training session, your diet of butterfly. No, I think it can be instead of, Laurie. My shoulders get sore paddling the board. Jono, it's not the same as swimming. Jono, yeah it is, same pulling action. Jono, by all means surf, but don't miss training. Don't replace swimming training with surfing. A little bit won't hurt, Laurie. Jono, if you don't get first or second at the Olympic trials, you won't be going to Seoul. Laurie, I also need to be mentally fresh. Anyway, who's going to beat me? I've looked at the top ten lists a dozen times. No one will beat me. Don't panic. Once I make the team, I'll lift my work rate. I want to pace it to the Olympics. I don't want to be burnt out. Well, maybe I should have hit him in the mouth then and there. Made him do what he should have been doing. But a motivation bred out of fear or force cannot last. His weight belt remained unused. And the boy who was hungry for gold, the boy who was a hunter, the boy who pursued world record holders with fire in his belly, with persistence, aggression and determination, became complacent and overconfident. The hunter now became the hunted. And the bushfire that had raged within, the personal desire that had driven him to be Olympic champion, was reduced to a few smouldering embers. The Olympic trials in Sydney arrived. The 100 metres butterfly was on the first night, and for Jono it was a breeze. He was too good. He was too talented, too strong, and he became the first swimmer to qualify for the Seoul Olympic team. But only two days later came his moment of truth. His main event, where he was world record holder, was the 200 metres butterfly. The race in which, four years earlier, as a 17-year-old, he had crushed the world's best. This is an event that requires not only courage, but also supreme cardiovascular fitness. In Sydney, at those trials, the elation and the joy Jono felt at making the Olympic team turned sour as he struggled half-fit into third place in the 200-metre butterfly championship. The reality hit him. Only two swimmers per country are allowed to race each event at the Olympics. His short-lived elation gave away to feelings of despair and helplessness. He would not be defending his 200-metre butterfly in Seoul because he had run third at the Australian Swimming Championships. I held one potential trump card. One of the swimmers who had beaten Jono had, in fact, scratched himself from the final after the morning heats. Under the rules, he could be disqualified if, 
a protest was entered. I was caught in this invidious position. If I protested, this boy would be disqualified and miss the Olympic team. If I didn't, my swimmer would miss the chance to defend his Olympic title. I approached Bill Sweetenham, head coach of the team for Seoul, and questioned him about it. No worries, Laurie, said Bill. For me as a coach, this is like football. We need our best swimmers out there for Australia. And if Jono can show that he's the best man for the job in six months' time, he'll get the nod. We want our best man in the Olympic final. The other boy will get a relay swim. He won't come home empty-handed. For Jono, despair gave away to hope. And I'd never seen a man train as hard as he did in the weeks that followed. He became the ultimate animal in training. In addition to endurance work, sprints, gym work and running three times a week, all team members were required to do a heart rate set. A heart rate monitor was used to ensure that the swimmers trained and maintained a heart rate above 180 beats per minute for 45 minutes. Jono's back and shoulders would be red from effort. At the end of it, he would haul himself out of the water and lie exhausted on the pool deck, his chest heaving as he dragged in oxygen. Jono was hungry again. He was now desperate to defend his Olympic title and he was now prepared to once again pay the price. You cannot be successful unless you pay the price. He punished his body. Jono wanted that piece of Olympic history. The head coach scheduled some closed time trials at the AIS pool in Canberra prior to us leaving for the Olympics. Today, I am still mystified as to why Bill Sweetenham didn't match Jono and his opponents head-to-head in a 200-metre butterfly time trial. In fact, one of the chosen 200-metres fly swimmers didn't time trial that event at all, but swam the 200-metres freestyle instead. John O'Seban's actual time trial was faster than what he swam in a corresponding trial before the Los Angeles Olympic Games. John O was ready for gold in Seoul, but it was never to be. His hopes were dashed by a meeting of the Olympic swim team coaches at which the decision was made that he would not swim the 200 metres butterfly, despite my protests. The agony of that decision hit me later as I sat in the stands at Seoul and watched Michael Gross, the man that had never beaten Jono over 200 metres butterfly, win the Olympic gold medal. My fat Romanian friend George, a team coach for Romania, twisted the knife into an open wound when he commented, You know, you Aussies are funny, funny, funny people. Democracy might be all right, but we would not leave our best chance of a gold medal in the grandstand. He would be in the pool representing our country. You Aussies are stupid. Time either marches on and you learn from mistakes or failures. If you don't, you are a fool. I learned a tough lesson at that time, a valuable lesson. When the time comes for you to race, be 
ready because nobody really cares if you are sick, if you haven't prepared properly, or if you've had one of 101 excuses. Nobody cares. They are too busy interviewing and taking photos of the winner. Never look for or make excuses. This is sound, basic advice for young athletes. Be prepared. Don't compromise. Race tough. As a coach or athletes, we must continually reappraise our work because the moment you forget how a champion is made or how you become a champion or the moment you underestimate your opponents, this is the moment you start your downhill slide. Having been to the top with my swimmers and witnessed the great difficulties encountered in staying there has given me a greater appreciation of such people as the great Dawn Fraser. For Dawn to maintain international success as number one sprinter in the world, to be never beaten over 100 metres over three Olympiads was an absolute, incredible, superhuman performance. Dawn Fraser knew the value of hard work and I've heard her expound her beliefs on numerous occasions to starry-eyed young swimmers. You kids remember, only the pain of a hard workout can save you the agony of defeat. Failure, however, is only a mistake if you refuse to correct it. So let me give this advice to other young people about their athletic careers. Make a big sign and put it above where you sleep or even at your main training venue. And as you climb to the top, live by the motto, perspiration is the lather of success. And once you are at the top, make another sign and place it underneath so that you are reminded daily, never forget how you became good. The fact that he was not totally physically prepared to win at the trials cost Jono an Olympic gold medal in Seoul. His application and dedication after the trials, when he was told he had a chance of defending his gold medal, his application then was total. But being brutally frank, Jono missed too many training sessions in the lead up to the trials. That's where the damage was done. At my end, I didn't put enough pressure on him as a coach to attend training. I failed a coaching assignment. The teamwork was not there. Mentally, Jono was still tough. You don't lose this quality. However, mentally, Jono was still tough. You don't lose this quality. However, in an aerobic activity, mental practice or toughness is no substitute for physical training. Confidence can only be based on action. The harder you work in training, the easier it is to race with confidence. The harder you work in training, the harder it is to surrender. A commitment to action is a sure way to make your dream a reality and not a fantasy. True training commitment brings a belief in the fact that you are going to succeed. 
This, in turn, brings confidence and, when the moment of truth arrives, you can recall, the harder you work, the harder it is to surrender. There is another message, too, from the John O. Sieben experience of 1988. National coaches must remember that flexibility is an important ingredient in coaching if we don't want to throw away Olympic gold medals. The harder you work, the harder it is to surrender. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Stuff the Silver, We're Going for Gold. To stay up to date with all episodes, please subscribe to this podcast. For more information, visit laurielawrence.com.au. It's alive to the fire!